Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, our topic is, Was Jesus a Jew or a Judean from Galilee? And I guess the other question is, does this make any difference? Is there any difference between the two? And what is the derivation of the word Jew? Is it from Judean? I'm looking at the dictionary.com, and it says the definition, noun, one of a scattered group of people that traces its descent from the biblical Hebrews or from post-telexic adherence of Judaism. Item number two, the definition, a person whose religion is Judaism. Three, a subject of the ancient kingdom of Judah. Four, adjective, offensive, term. Five, offensive to bargain sharply with as a verb. And then the origin, according to this, is from 1125 to 1175 A.D., Middle Ages, the word J-E-W-E. And then I'm just looking at some different places. This is a website called Hebrew Identity, and they say, who is a Judean, who is a Jew? Only these persons may be defined as Judeans, a member of Judah's tribe when the Hebrew people was divided into tribes, an inhabitant of Judea country when it existed as a state entity. And then they go on here. So they say that it's important to mention that throughout the history, anti-Semites adopted pejorative and offending names towards the Hebrews, derived from the word Judean, like Jew, Jude, Jewish, Juden. Anyway, they're they're actually uh, like to, this particular group likes to refer to themselves as Hebrews and uh, not Jews. But we've seen, though, use of the word Jew in most translations of the Bible, starting from the King James back in the 1700s. I guess the initial King James Bible did not use the word Jew. The word was Judean. Uh, We want to also ask in tonight's discussion, who are the chosen people in God's kingdom? Are they still the Jews today? We hear that the Jews are the chosen people, not only by Jews themselves, but by millions of Christians. Tonight, we're fortunate to have with us not only Chuck Carlson of We Hold These Truths, we've got Travis Steele, and we've got Craig Hansen, and our special guest, William Bell, Jr., who is a pastor from Tennessee. And we're so glad to uh, have you all on here and Chuck, I'm going to let you start off with your thoughts, and then we'll open it up to anybody else who would like to make some comments. Okay, well, of course, the so-called state of Israel is perhaps the center of world conflict today. It is the longest standing occupation in the world. The, the, The oldest occupation in the world was, of course, the Soviet gulags, the prison camps of Soviet Union which from 1917 until 1990 were uh, continuously operating 
detention centers where literally millions of political prisoners were held. But now it's getting close to the 65-year occupation of the country of Palestine to being the oldest continuous ongoing occupation of one people by another. And it's not really argued too much today whether it's an occupation. You hear people like John Kerry come out and say uh, to the Council on Foreign Relations that Israel is occupying the Palestinian people. Israel denies they're occupying, but really nobody in the civilized world thinks otherwise. You've got three and a half million people who are basically in prison camps, something like the gulags of Russian days, which we all put that all behind us now. Some of us actually uh, were drafted into the military to try to limit the uh, expansionism of the Soviet Union back in the 1960s and 1970s. So this is a very valid subject to talk about how the state of Israel gets away with occupying and how they manage this. And of course, they do it by a religion. The state simply claims that they are God's chosen people and they were given this land even though they have no right or title to the land. And uh, even though everyone agrees and admits that they were immigrants, forced immigrants into somebody else's property, which they then have simply taken over and occupied by rule of force. Since Christians are a large part of the sport for the state of Israel, we ask the very simple questions. What has been done in the Bible to make Christians believe that the state of Israel has a right to occupy the Palestinian, or, or as I sometimes like to call them, the Philistines, to give them a biblical name, the land of the Philistines? What has been done to our Christian Bibles to allow this to happen and be accepted by at least one-third to maybe even as much as a half of the total Christian population who say, yes, Israel has a right to be there. So this is the basis of, of us arguing about these words. And two of the words that we hear all the time are the uh, word Israel. Where did that come from? And we find out that Israel was a state that accepted a name, just like a corporation accepts a name. They call it anything you want. And when Israel started out in 1947, it, it was really called by the people instigated it, the Jewish homeland. And after they got there, they chose the name Israel from the Bible to call the Jewish homeland. So we deal with that word Israel as a synonym for the Jewish homeland. And then, of course, the other word that we become used to using, that the Bible is just full of everywhere, is the word Jew. And so we wonder, where did these two words come from? How did they become accepted as God's will over uh, the land of the Philistines. That's my uh, addition to your introduction, Tom, and with that I'll stop and see what our guests have to say. Well, those are great questions. We need answers. This is William. One of the reasons certainly has to do with the lack of understanding that Christians in general have regarding what the Bible says about Israel, Abraham, etc., and the premises that were made to him. Another has been the influence of what we know as dispensationalism, which gained a lot of impetus in the early part of the 19th century, and which has become, in many ways, the common, if you please, 
Christian view of the end times, and there is a tremendous amount of influence toward favor toward Israel in that end times worldview. And of course, you know, some of its major proponents would be men like John Hagee and Tim LaHaye and uh, others. In addition to that, it's been the historical, um, you might say, mythologizing of a lot of information regarding who those people are. And as Chuck was saying earlier, this is information that came to be known as such, whereas when they first decided to enter this land, it was full of inhabitants. And they recognize, and when I say they, I mean, you know, the Zionists, etc. And this is in their histories. You know, you can read this as common information. They published it themselves, and others have written about it as well, that they had to remove the inhabitants from the land. And that's why you hear about all these refugees who are desiring to come back in the land. They wouldn't be refugees if they were not in the land before this happened. So it's a combination of several things that creates this. The dispensationalist view, which definitely needs to be addressed, a lack of understanding of the biblical promises made to Abraham, who those people are, and what was the extent of those promises, and to whom they ultimately referred. And one key point I would say there would be the promise of Abraham from Genesis 12.3 is developed. Well, I'll take it even before that. If you start in Genesis 3.15, it was the seed of the woman. And, of course, God began to develop that through Abraham in Genesis 12, but then he narrowed it down to the seed of Abraham, and that seed ultimately becomes Christ. And so it's the failure of people to understand that the true people of God, as part of the question involved, uh, has to do with Christ as the seed, and those who are, by faith, believers in him. But the other part was the historical information and uh, what happened with the Balfour Declaration and then just the general ignorance or lack of awareness of people today. And that's why a call such as this one uh, and discussions such as these are so vital to helping people to get a grasp on it. Great. Now, one of the questions we had was, who are the chosen people? And most Christians believe that the chosen people are those who follow Jesus. And we go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 28-29. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that corroborates what William just said there, that uh, the chosen people, in the opinion of Christians, obviously in the opinions of other people, uh, our opinion doesn't count, I guess. So, Well, we also get discredited because when we say things like you've just mentioned, and like I was saying, we're charged with, being, you know, with teaching replacement theology. In other words, the common belief is God has two programs running side by side. One for Israel, which refers to land promises or geography, and then the other, which are spiritual promises, 
that belong to the church. And so by separating the promises made to Abraham, they feel that they can run these two programs alongside, and they never, they never touch. One is focused on the earthly promises and the other on the, the heavenly promises. And that is a part of the problem, which, you know, your statements answered very clearly in terms of where that ultimate seat is. And as a matter of fact, I wrote a little booklet some years ago. Which it was really basically a transcribed lecture, but it was called Eschatology in Galatians. And what it focused on was the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, which in Galatians four twenty-one through 31, you have Paul's application of the allegory, the symbolical story involving Abraham, his two wives, and or you know Sarah and Hagar, and then their children. And these represented the two covenants. The two women were the two covenants, and then their children represented the two people. That is, those who were born according to the flesh and those who were born according to the spirit. And of course, in the historical case, Ishmael persecuted Isaac, and the result was to cast him out so that he could not be heir with the son of the free woman. Sarah, therefore, was the heavenly Jerusalem and was the one who would become the heir. That's an extension, actually, of what takes place in Galatians, which is all about the inheritance to start with. It's about who were the true sons of God. So that epistle develops that. But they charge us with replacement theology, and Paul addresses that in the 11th chapter of Romans when the question is, has God cast off his people whom he foreknew? And one of the points that I think is important is, for example, Acts chapter 2, when you have Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, gathered on the day of Pentecost, they hear the gospel, the outpouring of the Spirit, according to Joel 2, is mentioned as an explanation of the Holy Spirit phenomenon going on, and Joel's prophecy was that the remnant from among Israel would be saved, not all the nation, but a remnant from them. And as a result of those who responded to the gospel, a remnant was added to the church. So when Paul, when the question is asked in Romans 11, has God cast away his people whom he foreknew? The text says, certainly not. For I am an Israelite, this is Paul speaking, of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So in other words, this is not replacement theology. This is the remnant that God has promised he was going to save from among Israel. And for the first few years in the church, the gospel had only been preached to those who were not Gentiles. They constituted the church. So it's not a replacement. And then he makes this statement in chapter 11 and verse 7. But he says, Israel has not obtained what it sought for or what it seeks, but the election have obtained it. So that statement is very clear in that the nation who rejected Christ didn't receive what they were seeking, but there was a remnant from among Israel who did receive it. And that's Paul's response. God did not cast away his people. He actually blessed those among Israel who comprised the remnant that accepted Jesus Christ. And that was excellent, William. That was a very cogent explanation of the the overview here. 
William has said that the ignorance of people in the church is a huge problem, and I really do agree with that. We don't study like we should, and but the Zionist state of Israel understood all of this very well, and they and they were very clever in taking advantage of our weaknesses. The planning that went into creating this renegade state of Israel, which today is really the center of the world's warring activities, it's it, you can almost say it is. It acts like the center of evil in the world. And that's my own opinion, and so no one has to really accept that. But we think if you really look at it, you'll see that this evil really is generated there. And the planning of this is is really diabolically clever. A man named Theodore Herzl wrote a book called Der Judenstaat. And in that book, never once is the state of Israel ever mentioned. The plan is to find a place they can go and start a Jewish state. In other words, a state that is exclusive to Jewish people. And uh, nowhere in any of Theodore Herzl's writings do I find anything wherever he mentioned the use of the word Israel. And then there was a biography of Herzl, which is perhaps the most complete biography written by a name of Alex Bean, and translated out of German by Maurice Samuel, who was Jewish, And this is the personal history of Herzl, who died before the Jewish state was ever created. Nowhere in this book is the word Israel ever appear. No one thought about about calling this state Israel. If they did, they kept it to themselves, and they hid it out very cleverly. So then when the state is granted a charter by Great Britain, who basically stole the land from the Palestinians and gave it away to their noblemen, Jewish friends, such as Lord Rothschild, who was a very prominent Brit, when this happened, suddenly the Jewish state didn't say we are the Jewish state. They didn't name themselves that. They suddenly picked a name out of our Bible. They went back into our Bible and they found the most venerated word that they could find anywhere, going all the way back to Abraham, a grandson of Abraham's, I should say, named Israel. And they named their country. Very, very clever to do that. So today, if you ask anybody, what is Israel? They won't say he's a grandson of Abraham. They'll say that's that country that is in the Middle East, the one we hear about all the time that is so noble and that's always being put upon by its neighbors and is being persecuted by the Arabs and that the anti-Semites are after all the time. And so that's the image that people have of the state of Israel And then mysteriously, and also in the Bible, through the 14th through the 17th century, the Bible translators created a word out of thin air that didn't even exist. There was no word like it called Jew, J-E-W. And that word, of course, became affixed to the wandering populations of Europe and so on. And now, of course, we think of the people who live in Israel as being the biblical Jews, and as we read our Bible, we find out where these Jews were everywhere in our Bible. Abraham was one. Jesus himself was one. All of the prophets were J-E-W-S. And yet there was no word in the biblical language. And a man named Benjamin Friedman wrote a book in which he discussed this whole matter in the 1950s. And he, he points out that this word 
J-E-W, was created out of thin air from Latin and Greek words that didn't even have a J in them. And uh, the, the principal one of these was the land of Judea. And, of course, Jesus came from Galilee in the land of Judea, which had been a one-time sort of a colony. And so he became known as a Judean. And then now uh, somehow that's translated into Jew. And then in terms of what we think of today as a Jew, we think of uh, the people who live in Israel. And, of course, the uh, Jewish writers that we read on, in, our, in our newspapers and other Jewish businessmen that we read about and so on. So somehow this new state of Israel managed to create an aura around themselves by inventing words and borrowing words from the Christian Bible. And so now, of course, we are pressed with the, the concern about being uh, called anti-Semites if we object to the use of those words. A good point. And, of course, there seems to be a connection with what you said Chuck, and the promotion of the Schofield Reference Bible. If listeners have not watched our award-winning film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and Turning, they need to, to watch that to get some of the historical background that Christian Zionism or dispensationalism was a promoted religion through the vehicle of the Schofield Reference Bible. And writer Cyrus I. Schofield had connections to prominent Zionists of the day when he wrote this. So it's a very fascinating story there that would indicate that there was some planning to all this. I don't imagine it was all just a happenstance. Right, Tom. So we have a, a sort of a created religion, which we call Christian Zionism, prominently in the United States, which essentially supports every act of the state of Israel. And the state of Israel picked a good name, which is easy to support, and we now liken the people who live there to Jesus and his followers, who were told every day were, are Jews. They were Judeans. Yeah, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention. Chuck, you spoke about Benjamin Friedman. Uh, I just published an article on the Memphis Examiner. You can just look up Memphis Eschatology Examiner. For those who are not familiar with him, there were three videos that were posted on YouTube where he goes into the history of the Zionist development. Uh, he has inside information. He also knew Samuel Untemeyer, who was the financier, I believe, of the Schofield Bible. And so he was well connected with that information. Another comment I wanted to make was related to the term anti-Semite. You know, I just read a documentation where the ADL did this poll on people who were considered anti-Semitic. And, of course, they claimed that, you know, 21 million Americans were, based on their survey, and they went around the world, they found the highest response to anti-Semitism in the Middle East. And, of course, I'm sure no one here is surprised by that. But at any rate, what I wanted to comment on was the very term anti-Semitic, which is something that is held over the heads, and that's another reason why people don't get involved with these studies, because they are afraid of being labeled as anti-Semitic. When the whole concept of Semitism or anti-Semitic, that idea is kind of a misnomer, in that from my research, Semitic refers to a language, not to an ethnic group. Anyone who will do a study, even of the genealogy of 
Abraham will find that it's not ethnic. And not all of Shem's descendants spoke Semitic languages. Elam, for example, who, according to the research, inhabited southern Iran, was not a Semitic-speaking people. And the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia is one of the resources for that, but there are others who have done the research. And on the other hand, Hamitic descendants, the descendants of Ham, all spoke Semitic languages. And this is one of the reasons why when you talk to a Palestinian, they'll tell you that they are Semitic, and they are. So when you talk about anti-Semitism, if you understand what the language really means, this is another one of these terms that, if you please, has probably been borrowed, as Chuck was saying, and being used in a way that you know, instills guilt among people and uh, incites animosity, etc. But when you really study it, it was a language, and what's unique about it, you know, you, if you recall when the disciples were uh, afraid after Jesus was apprehended, you know, arrested, and we have this text that says, smite the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Well, I understand that it has a more eschatological connotation, but initially it referred to Christ, and all of his disciples did sort of scatter that night. But while they were being questioned, uh, that you know, and Peter was denying the Lord, you know, he said, I don't know the man. And they said, well, your speech agrees to it. In other words, there are linguistic arguments that say people who speak Semitic languages, it's, um, there are sounds within that language that are very, with difficulty, pronounced by Europeans, if you please. And so the language that they speak is not for the Khazar and Ashkenazi people. They're not speaking the Semitic language. They're speaking a combination of Yiddish and uh, some, other, some other language. But they say it's with difficulty, and these are from Jewish scholars who say this. So to be anti-Semitic would be more against the language of a person. And you had all of Ham's descendants who spoke Semitic languages, if you do the research, but not all of Shem's descendants spoke Semitic languages. Now, we're not saying that the descendants of Abraham didn't speak them because they did, but not all of them did. And that just shows you uh, the fallacy in using that term from that perspective. But that, too, is a matter of educating people so that they understand. William, would it be fair to say that our Christian heritage, or even our Christian way of expressing ourselves, is now being influenced by an Israeli culture that's created around itself a thing called Christian Zionism that has had this major influence over all of us? There is an organization called the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies, and it's uh, centered at the Chicago Divinity School, and it's got Christian professors, Jewish professors, and others in it. And they've come up with a set of statements that they say should unify Jews and Christians in a common goal of peace. So we're all for world peace. We're, we're, we're very concerned about world peace. And uh, then they, you come down to the principles that they say that Christians and Jews should agree to, and we can't agree to them at all. Uh, their first principle is Jews and Christians worship the same God. Well, uh, where, who left Jesus out? What Christians would say that Christians and Jews worship the same God when the Jewish religion outright pronounces that there is no Christ or there was no Christ and there has been no Messiah? So that's just number one, and there are eight of these statements that they 
would hope that Christians would agree with them, with the Israelis, let us say, to these statements. And so through the use of these words, such as Israel, which used to mean a tribe uh, three or 4,000 years ago of a few people wandering in the desert, and today means a state created by laws and uh, international law that is uh, the greatest and largest jailer in the world. Uh, the meaning of the word has been completely changed. We have these changing of words. It's kind of like today, what does apple mean? If you ask somebody over 50, they'd say it's a fruit. If you ask somebody under 50, they'd say it's a computer. Isn't that right? I mean, the word has changed. And this has right. happened with all kinds of words that we are uh, beset with. And we need to take back our Christianity Look at the meaning that Tom quoted and that uh, William has quoted from Galatians and other places in Scripture that make it very, very clear what our, what our Christianity is all about. We don't share it. It's not a shared religion that is part Jewish and part Christian. It is uniquely our Christian faith. And we're having it stolen from us by the use of these words, as words are used to steal all kinds of things from us in our daily lives. That's a very good point, uh, Chuck. And just to add to the comments on the ICJS, Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies, we did a podcast um, March 18th entitled Judaizing Christianity the ICJS Way. So if you're interested in finding a little bit more about what they said, we go over these eight points in fairly good detail. I think it's an interesting podcast. As a side, perhaps you should add William's link. Examiner.com forward slash eschatology. And then if you plug in William Bell, you're a regular there, William. I see several of your articles there, so way to go. You know, you said some great things here. I think, uh, one, we have to be very careful about trying to merge these two together. That was one of the things that the Bible talked about, that you couldn't put new wine in old wineskins, for one. And so when you talk about these two in the Scriptures, it's the dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit in, in covenantal terms. However, we don't want to... St I think there's value in helping Christianity to understand its Jewish roots. Uh, and from that perspective, text like we used last week, where Paul said they couldn't prove that he was teaching replacement theology. They couldn't prove that he was teaching something contrary to the law of Moses. But what he said was, Acts 24, 14 and 15, he says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things, which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now, here's the question. How could Paul, who came to believe everything written in the law and in the prophets, abandon Judaism? He had excelled above any that was in his religion. He was very well educated. He came to abandon it, and even after having abandoned trying to destroy the church, he said, what they're calling a sect is what I do in worshiping God and believing all things written in the law and in the prophets. So Christianity is not separated 
from what's written in the law and the, in the prophets. That's that's what dispensationalism wants us to believe. They want us to believe that Christianity is a flaw in the plan of God, whereas Paul says, no, it is the plan of God. In Acts 26, he says, therefore, verse 22 and 23, therefore having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would rise, uh, be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, having said that, that tells us that there is a lot in the Old Testament that we need to stay connected with so that we truly understand Christianity. And that's one of the re- from from my religious background, which is Church of Christ. There's been a severing, if you please, of the Old Testament premises and culture into the New Testament, where they think God ended his total relationship with the Jews in 30 AD when Jesus died on the cross, and then everything from that point forward is all about Gentiles. And that is not true. And that's why many of them, you know, the text I quoted earlier from Romans 11, they have no clue what to do with that text, because it is still talking about premises of Israel beyond that. But when I say that, again, I remind you that we were talking about the remnant. So with this information, we need to stay connected to the Old Testament because that's where the root and promises are. But Paul says that leads you into Christianity. It doesn't, it doesn't allow you to stay with, with the Old Covenant way of life. God made a new covenant with, with, uh, with them. And uh, so from that perspective, I agree that you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by me. That's exclusive. We have to maintain that exclusivity as well. And so I don't think this idea where, and, and largely I've seen this coming from the dispensational persuasion where they're trying to unite the two, but when they deny Jesus Christ as the Messiah, then you know that's a place, that's an area of no compromise. That destroys the very foundation of our salvation because the Bible says if Christ is not raised, faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Well said. Tom, uh, this is Craig. I'm asked uh, several times, why, Craig, why, do you, why you're so upset with Christian Zionism? You brought up the word occupy, and that's the key word here. We're seeing a, a people group coming in and overtaking another people group by force, by deceit, by violence, and they're doing that, and then Christians are supporting it. And that's, that's what gets my hackles up, as it were, that they're doing this and getting supported by Christians in the name of Jesus. And if it, if it were anybody else but the Jews, I would still be upset if Christians were supporting a stance that is so anti-Christian. And uh, it just happens to be the Jews that are doing this to the Palestinians. And that's why I get involved in this, and that's why it inspires me to do something to make a change. People say, well, you know, what about the occupation and the the colonization of America and what happened to the American Indians and all these other things? And I said, well, that didn't happen on my watch. This is going on right now in my my lifetime, and and, uh, this is something that I can speak about, something I can do about, and that's what motivates me to come out and, and take a stand because hopefully the Christians who, because of their bad theology, will wake up and realize, no, we're not representing Jesus in this. And so hopefully some people will wake up, especially with, like this uh, uh, vigil this next weekend, 
that people will wake up and say, no, I'm on the wrong side of this, and I need to take a stand for peace and not for war. That was a very good comment, Craig. And we are called, our ministry may not be a popular one, but it's necessary, and as long as we do it with what Jesus taught us, we know that people have been conditioned here in the United States. There has been a definite conditioning for accepting war and all these things we talked about, the term Jew and and Israel, and that they're the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. So we've seen this conditioning. And uh, I'd also recommend, for anybody listening, we posted another new documentary. It was on a major media TV station that, that did this. Now, the station was not in the United States. It happens to be in Australia. But it's about the Israeli treatment of Palestinian children, brutal treatment, arrest and harassment and and beatings and torture, detainment. It's an amazing film five that you would old, never... Uh, a five-year-old arrested for throwing rocks? Was that one of the... Was that in that or was that somewhere that else? That was in a five-year-old who was claimed to throw rocks by a, a Jewish settler. And on his word, with no other witness... They they detained the boy for several hours, which, of course, traumatized him. And it's an amazing documentary. It's 45 minutes long, and I can't recommend it any higher that it needs to be seen and shown. And so we many Christian Zionists, when they would watch that, would say that, oh, that's those are all lies, you know, that, that they're just propaganda. But they, they tell both sides on the story. I mean, they interview the uh, Israeli spokesman in, in this thing. So they've done a very good job. Uh, the, the announcer actually is a reporter from the Australian national newspaper in Australia that's based in Israel. And it, it's very, very well done. And again, thank you for everybody's comments. I think that should wind up our program. I hope you found it interesting. And be sure to check out those links. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.